I came across a great article yesterday and I note that Alan in the studio here and me as well, we're both sporting our lockdown beards. And so the title of this article in the Financial Times really caught my interest. The introductory paragraph goes like this. Why have so many normally clean-shaven professional men grown beards during the COVID-19 lockdown? It's a curious issue, and it seems that many people from Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to actor Jim Carrey, along with some of this author's Financial Times colleagues, have started sprouting facial hair this year. But the author challenges some of the reasons that have been offered for this. Some of us guys are saying it's been it's too much trouble to shave. This author challenges it and says, well, that's contradictory because we've got more time than ever to spare because most of us aren't actually commuting to an office space at the moment. And other guys have said, doesn't matter what I look like because I'm not going into the office. And this author challenges that reason tongue-in-cheek as well saying, well, that's contradictory because many of these jobs are now being carried out over video conference, which involves looking directly at one another's face for most of the day, including our own face. The author goes on to say, I suspect that if you want to make some sense of lockdown facial hair, it pays to look beyond the mere question of style or the nature of office culture and explore a concept that has been long familiar to psychologists and other social scientists, if not the wider world. It's a term called liminality. This term was coined in 1909 in a book called The Rites of Passage and then developed over a number of years later. It refers to the idea that many societies use rituals and symbols to mark moments of transition from one state to another or the limbo when someone is at the threshold of change. One of my children is in grade six this year, and we had a great little chat over the weekend about what a story he'd have to tell his grandkids. His year as a grade sixer is nothing of what he would have expected or built up in anticipation over his years of primary school. There's going to be hopefully some sort of graduation, but it'll look different to the graduations that have gone past. He's in a a waiting space, an unusual time in a very challenging year. And boy, will he have a story to tell his grandkids when I was in grade six. And he's got plenty of years to allow that story to expand as uh, sometimes grandparents like to do. The author says that maybe this beard growing is a way of marking the fact that we're in a liminal time. I just thought that was a great way of introducing the topic that I really felt was important to share on this morning. And it was to address this time of what, what we do when we're, when we're waiting, we're in that space of agony where we're experiencing the now, but we're hoping for a not yet. What do we do? The truth is that our culture and our time is not good at waiting, is not good at entering those deep questions of struggle and pain in a way that actually helps us to come out of it even better than when we went in. But liminal spaces actually provide us an opportunity to go back to the core of our 
spirituality. And if we know how to engage with it in the right way, regardless, without making light of, but regardless of the pain that we're challenging, a challenge by at the moment, we will actually come out better humans with better communities and far deeper spirituality than we went in. My pastor friends tell me that it's important to recast the situation that we're in and introduce me to the words of a Russian philosopher, Nikolai Berdyev, who says this, Night is not less wonderful than day. It is equally the work of God. It is lit by the splendor of the stars and it reveals to us things that the day does not know. Night is closer than day to the mystery of all beginning. Doesn't that recast the situation? Doesn't it allow us um, an opportunity to enter into the mystery of a waiting space and wonder, what is it that's here for me to discover that I couldn't discover in any other way or hadn't realized before? That brings me to a book in the Bible that for a long time I didn't know what to do with. I read it once because my goal was to read the Bible cover to cover. Back then I didn't even know that it was written out of or assembled out of chronological order. So there was things that seemed like it was repeating itself in the Old Testament a little bit. But I got through the whole Bible and can now say I've read it cover to cover and have learned a whole bunch since then. But the book of Job was one I really didn't know what to do with. Job experiences all manner of pain that have been brought upon him through circumstances well outside of his control. One of my kids was flicking through the Bible one time and they came across this book and they said, Job, does the Bible tell you how to get a job? And the reality is the Bible probably does give principles that will help us get and sustain good work habits. But the book of Job, even though it's spelt J-O-B, is not about getting a job. I would call it like a lonely planet travel guide. But this lonely tra planet travel guide is aimed not at geographical places that we can't visit at the moment from Melbourne anyway. But this lonely planet travel guide is about how to journey through that time that's called liminal space, the, the waiting, those times of wondering, the time of experiencing the now and hoping for the not yet. How do we enter into those kind of times? The book of Job is such a wonderful travel guide and it gives us highlights of places like a Lonely Planet guide would do that help us find places that we would want to visit. And we give a five-star rating and it would also give us places that we should avoid at all costs because they're a no-star rating kind of place. What do I mean? Well, if you want to see how Job got into this kind of a tight spot, reality is he lost his family, his business, and his bank account in today's terms, then you would need to read chapter one, just Google it, look it up for yourself. But we get to a guy who's experiencing all manner of pain. And chapter two starts off there brilliantly. It introduces Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Personally, I reckon those names would float today in the school, the schoolyard 
Shorten Eliphaz to Eli and Bildad to Billy and Zophar to Zoe. And I reckon, look, I'm not necessarily recommending this, but I'm just saying if you're in the position where you're looking for baby names, then let's think creatively and include things out of the ordinary. But I'm not sure what kind of model they set, actually, if we drill down into it. Let me introduce these three friends of Job. They meet together and they say, Job's got in a very difficult situation. He's lost everything. He's in an enormous amount of pain. Let's go and comfort him. God bless him. What a wonderful intention. Bible says it like this. They heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. The message version, which I want to draw on today, because it's just a little bit easier for us to understand and to think through what's, what's presented here, says in verse 12, when they first caught sight of him, they couldn't believe what they saw. They hardly recognized him. He was in that much grief and that much mourning. And so they cried out and lament. They ripped their robes and they dumped dirt on their heads, which was in that the ancient culture, a sign, an outward sign of an inward grief. Then they sat with him on the ground. Seven days and nights, they sat there without saying a word. They could see how rotten he felt, how deeply he was suffering. What do we need in a time of transition, a liminal space, a time of pain, that experience of darkness? Maybe actually we need two or three friends to sit on the ground with us, not say anything, but just to be there. At my mum's church today, they're doing a Zoom lunch. I think this is a great idea. And so a meal has been distributed to all the different members of that church community yesterday with the instructions that you open it at lunchtime today. And on Zoom, they all eat together as a way of sitting with one another and being with one another, using technology and the means that are creatively at our disposal. Yesterday, she went to her front porch and found that uh, a package had been dropped off. So she, um, she picked up the bag and had a look inside and it was four cakes. And she thought, what an unusual lunch. Now, as a beard-wearing guy, I would say to me, that sounds like a spectacular lunch and I wouldn't have even had two thoughts about it. But my mum thought that's an unusual lunch. Anyway, later on the day, she went to her front door again and found there's another package and this time it actually contained a meal and it turns out that a, another kind person had thought as a gesture of solidarity and sitting with people in, in community at this time, they'd drop off a gift on the front door and that gift was cakes. Two things dropped off on the front door for the price of one in a way. But isn't it wonderful that people are finding ways of staying connected and metaphorically speaking, sitting with one another in the moment, at this moment. But let's continue with this story of Job because you know how it's easier to hide your true feelings with a guest in your house than it is when someone moves in or you live in community with them for more than, well, for argument's sake, let's say seven days. Because here what happens after seven days is Job breaks the silence and he lets out how he's really feeling. 
is pretty serious. He says, obliterate the day I was born, blank out the night I was conceived. Let it be a black hole in space. May God above forget it ever happened. Erase it from the books. Job's going through enormous pain, grief, loss, what he had before he entered this waiting space, this mourning space, this darkness that he was experiencing. And he gives his friends a, a fair serve at how he's feeling, no holds barred. He, he lets it all out. And as a, a younger person reading the book of Job for the first time, I couldn't understand how that was appropriate or acceptable. The truth is when we're in a space like this, Sometimes we just need to vent. But when we vent, we want to have the right voices around us because after a long epic from Job, Eliphaz eventually, our friend Eli here, cuts him off. He says this, Would you mind if I said something to you? Under the circumstances, it's hard to keep quiet. And he begins his sermon, teaching poor Job, moralizing the content of what he'd just shared out of his heart. He was listed blameless in God's eyes. He teaches him a thing or two. Chapter 5, if I were in your shoes, I'd go straight to God. I'd throw myself on the mercy of God. After all, he's famous for great and unexpected acts. There's no end to his surprises. He gets the point in verse 17. God is punishing you. So what a blessing when God steps in and corrects you. Mind you, don't despise the discipline of Almighty God. True, he wounds, but he also dresses a wound. Now, one of the most challenging things about well-meaning advice that's given by uh, unwise friends is that there's an element of truth to it. But that element of truth, if majored on, can end up at a horrible, unnecessary, unhelpful destination. Because God is indeed merciful. But when Jesus reveals the heart of God, he says, imagine a good father on earth. And imagine if you asked that father for a loaf of bread, what would he give? What would he give you? He wouldn't give you a rock gives you a loaf of bread. Now, magnify that idea when you think about the good father that we have in heaven. A God who punishes, a God who creates disaster, a God who is causing events to happen that create loss in your life. That's not the God that Jesus reveals. It's just plain wrong. And so Eli and his well-meaning advice heads off into dangerous territory that's not at all helpful. Have you ever heard a voice like that? Have you ever allowed a voice like that to speak to you? wonder even in this time of lockdown when our own self-talk is louder than ever before. Has that kind of voice entered your self-talk? You're in this spot because you bought it on yourself. You did this to yourself. It's your fault. God is punishing you. I want to tell you this morning is unequivocally not how God is. That's well-intentioned advice, but it's not helpful advice. And we see the fruit of that advice in 
chapter 6, where Job answers, If my misery could be weighed, if you could pile the whole bitter load on the scales, it would be heavier than all the sand of the sea. And on he goes, venting and sharing and being courageously honest about what's going on in his heart. That point, we get to chapter 8, and Bildad, old Billy, has had enough. He's next to speak. How can you go on talking like this? You're talking nonsense and noisy nonsense at that. Have you ever had that sort of self-talk going on? Have you ever heard a voice like that? Have you ever accepted the words of advice that come, whether it's by your own self-talk, by well-meaning others? Have you ever let advice like that come in? It's okay to share how we really feel. If we find a safe place to do it, our feelings, your feelings, they're not nonsense. They're not noisy nonsense. Billy goes on to say, does God mess up? Does God Almighty ever get things backward? His belief is that it can't be God's fault, and so therefore it must be caused by, well, let's eliminate out of a crowded choice of two options. If it's not God's fault, it must be your fault. As if all the pain in the world is caused by either God or us. And that in itself is a ridiculous notion if we push that way of thinking to the end degree. It can be easy for people who are being abused to think that it's because it's something they've done wrong. That's absolutely not the case. And here that's where this well-meaning advice for me, I'd rather replace it with, well, Gandalf's wise words in the minds of Moria. Remember when he says, well, Frodo says to him, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had ever happened. And Gandalf replies, so do all who live to see such difficult times. But that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces in this world, Frodo, besides that of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you were also meant to have it, and that is an encouraging thought. What if you were here for such a time as this, as the book of Esther presents? What if this moment in time was one where you would get to realize and reconnect with the deep things that you were created for in a way that you never would have had opportunity to otherwise. There are other forces at work besides the work of evil, but we've got to look for them. and We've got to find the right questions to ask, I think, to access that. Questions promote discovery, but they're dangerous. What if I discover something that I don't have an answer for? I remember a formative moment for me. I was at La Poqueta in Box Hill and I was hanging out with some old school friends and I must have just said something. And a guy from a table opposite turned his chair around, leaned over and said, would you mind if I ask you a question? I said, that's fine. And I turned my chair around to him and right there in the in the La Poqueta restaurant, he asked me, do I have a faith? And am I a Christian? And he said, would it be okay to ask you some questions because 
I've got some other people who are Christians in my life. They've been telling me things, but when I ask questions, they get offended and they say, you can't ask that. Well, that doesn't sound like a healthy way to explore the deep matters of the soul. Asking great questions is actually a key to opening up what's in front of us. Zophar comes along too, good old Zo, Chapter 11, now it was his turn. What a flood of words. Shouldn't we put a stop to it? Should this kind of loose talk be permitted? Job, do you think you can carry on like this and we'll say nothing? That will let you rail and mock and not step in? You claim my doctrine is sound and my conduct impeccable. How I wish God would give you a piece of his mind. I'll tell you what's what. I wish he'd show you how wisdom looks from the inside. True wisdom is mostly inside. The voice of Zophar manages to turn Job's pain into something that's all about him. The voice of Zophar sings that song, It's All About Me, and wants to excuse someone else's pain and remind them of the pain that they're experiencing. Have you ever experienced that, where someone used your pain as a segue to talk about their own? There are starving kids in Africa, you know, that's an example of that. I've been in pain too, you know. Put your whinging in perspective, my perspective. Sometimes it's hard to be a good listener, to ask great questions. The book of Job covers more than 30 chapters and it goes round and round in this discussion in, in a guidebook almost format to help us understand how well-meaning people can end up giving poor advice because they were never meant to give advice. They'd never intended even to come with that. They'd actually intended to come and bring sympathy and comfort and sit in the dirt. All of this time, God is silent. Through all of this discussion, defending God, changing the situation, weighing it up, blaming, shaming, all of this kind of thing as Job continues to pour his heart out. And at the end of all that, when they're tired of, I guess, the sound of their own voice, eventually in chapter 38, after number of chapters of all of this discussion. It says this, And now finally God answered Job from the eye of a, of a storm. He said, Why do you confuse the issue? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? Put yourself together, Job. I have some questions for you and I want some answers. Where were you when I created the earth? Who decided on its size? Certainly you'd know that. Have you ever gotten to the true bottom of things, explored the depths of the ocean? I counted the next couple of chapters and I listed God asking 49 questions in a row. There's been all this theologizing, philosophizing, trying to work out which ways this way, that way, God's thoughts, your thoughts, what he should do, moralizing and 
and all the rest. And at the end of 37 chapters of that, on the 38th chapter, God asks 49 questions in a row. And then Job speaks, and then God asks a further 17 questions in a row. And in chapter 42, Job has an encounter. All those questions led him to an open heart and to a life-changing moment. And he says to God, all right, I give it to you. He gives him his pain. He gives him his heart. He reconnects and realigns his mind and his life to how big God is and how much he chooses to trust him for the future. He lays down his pain and his burdens and his challenges. And he says, okay, God, yes, it's you. God loves time and time again to ask searching questions. After the world's gone nuts and and it's got broken apart by the poor choices of Adam and Eve, the first words that God says to them is, where are you? Prophet Elijah has seen a great miracle and in front of a nation, he's proven the existence of God. And then he runs away. He's exhausted. He's burnt out. He's, he's over it all. And eventually, after eating and sleeping and resting, God speaks to him. And he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? God loves to ask us questions and we think he wants to tell us morals. God loves to ask us questions and we think he wants to blame us for the circumstances we're in. God loves to allow for us to allow him to be big, to be God, to be the light and the hope of the world. And we are so focused on our present situation that we miss the mystery that's revealed in times of darkness, those liminal spaces. Gillian Tett, this Financial Times author, ends her article in saying this, the liminal space shakes us out of our habitual lives. Liminality draws us out of what we have known, yet it does not allow us to know what's coming next or when. It's the chrysalis stage for the caterpillar. Her suggestion is a good one, I think. She says, perhaps the next time that a politician or a CEO talks about the unpleasant limbo of lockdown, we should try giving it a sociological spin, presenting it within the framework of liminality, rather than letting us seem helplessly and hopelessly stuck. That might offer any immediate comfort to those suffering economic or psychological pain, but it could help reframe this particular moment in history in a more positive sense. And then she finishes tongue-in-cheek. Think of that the next time you see a scraggly beard during a Zoom call, and doubly so if when we return to the office it has been ritually shaved away a funny outward sign of an inward condition of entering a space that we might call the waiting room, that sociologists call liminal 
space. And there's so much of it in the Bible. But if we don't know how to engage with the pain and sit in these times of awkwardness, of impatience, of suffering, then we don't actually find the revelation on the other side of it. So Job's story concludes, interestingly, after his friends have apologized for the way they've treated him and he's forgiven them for being unhelpful. God is involved in initiating blessing and destiny again for his life. Job lived on for another 140 years. Now I'm going for a ripe old age of 106, but I think a further 140 years after Job had been through all that. Anyway, the Bible describes that as a blessing because he lives to see his children and grandchildren, four generations of them. And then he dies as an old, old man, having lived a full life. Doesn't God love to ask searching questions? And don't those questions invite us in to an entirely different space? One of my favorites is there's a bunch of guys gathered with Jesus. There's a few of them are fishermen. They've got experience in boats. In the middle of a lake, massive storms come up. And they ask the question, Jesus, don't you care we're going to drown? Now that seems a very realistic question because they're in a boat in a storm. It really seems like the end of their life's coming. Isn't it interesting, the question that Jesus asked back? And many times when he's asked a question, he'll ask a bigger one right back to someone. So they go away wondering and entering into a different space than they had been before with a bigger perspective, a more hopeful uh, outlook on life simply by asking a question. So they're in a boat, they're about to drown. And they say, Jesus, don't you care? We're going to drown. Can't you fix this? And Jesus asks this question, a bigger one. He says, why are you afraid? He calms the storm. And then the very next words out of their mouth are these words. Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now that is a question worth asking. They caught a miracle of Jesus in a tight, albeit short frame of time, but in a liminal space of their own. And they end up, after Jesus has asked them a question, asking this question, who is this man? Now that kind of question can change our lives because that question covers everything. Who is this man? He is my safety. Well, he'll calm the storm. Who is this man? He is my light. Well, he'll lead me to the future. Who is this man? Well, he is my savior. He's my refuge. He's my strength. Well, why would I be worried about anything else? Who is this man? Now that's a question worth asking. And I'll wind this up now, but I just got 20 questions to finish on, 20 of the best questions that I note that Jesus asked. And I mapped out the questions that he asked in the Gospels and found more than 100 of them. Here's some of my favorites. Why are you afraid? Why did you doubt? Who do you say I am? Why do you worry about clothes? What is it you want? What do you want me to do for you? What do you think? Why were you searching for me? 
Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Where is your faith? For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Why are you sleeping? Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? My personal favorite, given I've got a couple of teenagers at home, do you have anything here to eat? What do you want? Why do you involve me? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Who is it you want? Why question me? Who is it you're looking for? My guess is that right where you are today, God has a question for you that will change your perspective and will frame up a different narrative and will help you walk through this liminal space. Fellas, beard or no beard, what's going on the inside is so much more important. What question might Jesus be asking you today? I'd just like to pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for the wonderful example that you set in asking rich, deep questions that would lead us and guide us through to the next step of our lives. Lord, where we might be crying out to you to say, God, where is my next job? Where is my employment? You reframe the question and you say, what did I create you for? Lord, this morning, we're wanting to come to you and, and allow you to speak bigger questions to us that would have generational impact in mind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.